Turning your Bibles to Esther chapter 9, the ninth chapter of the book of Esther. Remarkable in so many ways, <clears throat> with powerful lessons for us today. We have reached very near to the end and have before us two sections of this remarkable book. We are closing out the ninth chapter. And nearly 10% of this book is given to explain a new holiday. It is a holiday that is still celebrated by the Jews today. And that is remarkable because God gave the Jews seven holidays in the book of Leviticus chapter 23. They were required to take at least 19 off days per year. And those days were stipulated in Leviticus chapter 23. Two of those holidays were one week long, a week in the first month and a week in the seventh month. And then holidays, five other holidays at different times. But after 1,000 years, that's how long it has been since Moses gave his law. After 1,000 years, they start this holiday by themselves. I'd like tonight to, to direct your attention to the holiday that is called Purim. Purim. Purim or Purim is the Persian word for lot. And we want to study where it came from and what it means. Let's look at chapter 9 and verse number 20. Chapter 9, verse 20. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters unto all the Jews that were in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus, both near and far. Mordecai is now writing letters. He's passing around these letters for all to see. Because he wants to begin a new tradition. I'll have you know that the idea of letters is used in the book of Esther more than anywhere else in the Bible except the book of 2 Kings. But perverse, Esther uses letters more than any book in the Bible. There's a letter in chapter 1 that the king sends to all the provinces so that the men will be respected by their wives. What a wasted letter. A good wife will already respect her husband without a letter, and a bad wife won't listen to a letter from a king. That's chapter one. In chapter three, a letter goes from the king, written by Haman, saying that all the Jews will be killed. Then in chapter eight, a letter is written saying, the people can be killed, but they can also defend themselves. So a letter starts the problem in chapter three, And a letter brings the solution in chapter 8. Then here in chapter 9, the problem has been solved. The enemies are destroyed. We saw that two weeks ago. The enemies are killed. Now a letter goes out saying, remember what happened. It's very interesting that letters were written this way. In a day when there were no schools, it was not easy to read. There were very few people in any city or town who could read. Newspapers would not sell very well. The internet has to wait for public schooling. 
But here with these letters, what we see remarkably is this. Satan uses words to try to kill God's people. And God uses words the way they were intended to save his people. For Jesus is both the truth and he is the word. Interestingly, Christians are called letters written on the hearts of those who lead them to Christ. You brothers are letters in my heart. You are written down. And I have great love for you because it is let, written by the Holy Spirit, according to the book of 2 Corinthians. You are, you are God's epistle written on my heart. And no matter what happens, it is the people of God that are dear to Christians for Christ gave his life for them. Somehow, we need good words to solve the problem. If bad words start the problem in chapter 3, good words can solve the problem. But look down in chapter 9, verse 21. The letters, what do they say? The letters establish among the Jews that they should keep the 14th day of Adar, that is the 12th month of the Jewish calendar, and the 15th day of the same every year. Two-day holiday. If you'll read Leviticus 23, five of the holidays are one-day holidays. This one is a two-day holiday. Two of the holidays were one week long. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which follows the Feast of the Passover. A whole week to remember the Passover. And then later on, a whole week to remember how they came out of Egypt. Two week-long holidays. One week-long holiday to remember how God killed the firstborn of the Egyptians. Then another one-week holiday to remember how they went through the wilderness, which means both week-long holidays were memories. Don't forget good things God did in the past. What's this two-day holiday for? Don't forget. From year to year to year, what's going to happen is before you know it, you're going to grow old. And all the people who were afraid in March, when the letter is hanging over their heads that they're going to be killed in December, I'm using, of course, the modern calendar for understanding. When all those people are afraid, then in December, they're all saved. Soon, they're going to have gray hair. Soon, they're going to forget the details. Soon, it's going to be dark on their lives. Soon their grandchildren will grow up and say, oh, granny's always talking about, about that time. But if they have this holiday two days every year, maybe they won't forget. How will they remember? Because look at this in verse 22. As the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies and the month which was turned from sorrow to joy, from mourning to a good day, so that they would make those, these days feasting and joy, sending gifts one to another and gifts to the poor. Nothing gets a child's attention like food, laughter, games, and gifts. Right? This is one of the reasons godly fathers need to have godly traditions in their home. In our home, on Christmas Day, we give gifts. We give gifts after we've read the Bible. And we talk about God giving the greatest gift of his son. And we tell the children, you're very young right now. And you probably just want this ball. 
You just want to open this package. The reason I'm giving this is so that in your mind forever, you will laugh at the day of Christmas. And I want you eventually in time to turn that laughter and that joy to the greatest of all gifts. But kids, there's a danger. With this present, when you open this box, there's a great danger. You might open this box and you might build a God out of the Legos in this box. We talk to our children that way and then we spend the rest of the day laughing and playing and eating because I want my children to have these kinds of joys. If you say, I can't take that, A.W. Pink hated Christmas. Charles Spurgeon wanted nothing to do with Christmas. But other godly Christians did have Christmas. We do it for those reasons right there. Right there. If you want to know why is it on the 25th, you can come over to our house. If you come over after 11, you'll find me playing ball with the kids or games with the kids. Why? Probably because of this 22nd verse. If you don't want to do that on Christmas, if you say, my conscience will not allow me, that's materialistic. Santa Claus is fake. I agree with you. We don't have anything to do with Santa Claus. But if you like Santa Claus, if you do whatever, if you say, I can't stand Christmas because it's a pagan, materialistic, secular, humanist holiday, fine. And on top of that, we have no idea that Jesus died on the 25th, or was born on the 25th of December. Fine. Make sure you've got some time in your year where these kinds of affections are happening in your kids' hearts, where they remember wonderful things. If you want to do it on the 16th day of May and say, today's our day to remember that Jesus came to earth, do it. We've chosen to do it the way traditionally it has been done. But we're trying to follow the 22nd verse of the ninth chapter, informing these godly traditions. Verse 23, the Jews undertook to do as they begun and as Mordecai had written to them. They took this time because they knew that traditions matter. And Mordecai was very wise. He was the one who began this holiday. He was not given inspiration from the Holy Spirit. There is a difference between godly wisdom and inspiration. Be careful that you have a theological category for those two. Sometimes charismatic churches will look at a man who used godly wisdom and they'll say, oh, the Holy Spirit told him, no, There needs to be a distinction. You may have wisdom to say, that's not the best thing, or that is the best thing, or let's do this, but that is different from being guided by the Holy Spirit. Why do we say that? Because as soon as you start to use the word, the Holy Spirit told me, it is not going to be far before you are decreasing the value of the words the Holy Spirit did give and increasing the value of the words you think the Holy Spirit gave. I've got 66 books, 31,000 verses, 611,000 words that I know he gave. So if you take a job in Messina and it's a good job and then later you tell me, oh, the Holy Spirit really told me to take that job. That's dangerous because what might happen to you in the future is you will slowly stop paying attention to 611,000 words and you will start paying attention to all the words that you like that come into your head. That is the great danger. So go ahead and say, it looked like it was a wise decision to take the job in Messina. Talk that way, because that's the way the Bible talks. But be careful with saying, the Holy Spirit told me. The Holy Spirit in the text did not tell Mordecai to have this holiday. Are you okay with that? 
Are there ever times when we should do things out of wisdom, even if the Holy Spirit didn't tell us? Many, many, many times. If you see your wife is exhausted, you might say, sweetheart, we're going to change the schedule. Normally, we were going to do this and this. We're changing the schedule because I'm looking at you and I really love you and I don't want you to be in this problem. Did the Holy Spirit tell you? (laughs) Don't, Don't say that. Just say, I looked at her and I loved her and I used wisdom from the Bible. But can you think of examples in the Bible? We talked about this in Nehemiah and in Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah both made covenants that were not commanded in the Bible, like our church covenant. The church covenant is wisdom. The Holy Spirit never told me, give them a church covenant. No, it's just good wisdom. I'm following people better than me from the 1600s. And in the same way, godly men need to do this with their families. They need to say, what wisdom has God given me? Like Mordecai led these people. Good men ought to be constantly searching for new ways to remember good things. Put that in your status on what's up. Why? Because remembering is very important. Let me give you three reasons why remembering is important. Remembering is important because we are very quick to forget. Adam and Eve forgot. How long were they in the Garden of Eden before they forgot? A day? A month? A year? It couldn't have been too long. They had no children. We know this, they forgot the word. They were given how many laws? We've got 66 books and you're responsible if you forget them. They had one law and they were perfect. They had no degradation from the modern stuff in our food. They had no distraction from their phones beeping. Adam didn't even have a pocket to put it in. They had nothing to distract them, only one law, each other to encourage them, and they had no sin nature to tempt them, and they forgot. They forgot God's authority. Deuteronomy is a book entirely written with this point. Do not forget. God wrote one of the five books of the law just so the people wouldn't forget. There are whole songs in the book of Deuteronomy and again in Psalms. There are many songs in Psalms that are only written so that we would not forget. You could say the Song of Solomon is a a poem written to a husband and wife not to forget. Yes, it is the joy of marriage, but why? The joy of marriage, they had that on the first day. Why'd they write the poem? So that they would have that joy in the second day and the second year and the second decade, right? The Song of Solomon is there. Remember what it was like the day we got married. Remember the week we got married. Because what's gonna happen, boys? You say to yourself, I can't wait to get married. It's great. But you say, oh, it's going to be, no, 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 no. Your fire, your energy, it's going to calm and change and distract. And after a year, two years, four years, five years, you will change. You need to remember. Song of Solomon is there to help you remember. Much of the Bible is given to us to remember. The Lord's table was given to us to remember. Do this in remembrance of me. If you want to think of the Feast of Purim as the Old Testament Lord's table given to them to remember. Think of all the effort the scripture goes to to keep men from forgetting. It gives us a duty to read our Bible. Why can't I just tell you once? 
Because you will. Why are we doing Bible quiz? One more thing to help us not to forget. The duty to confess our sin. Why do we confess our sin? Because we will forget that we are sinful creatures. We'll forget that we were made if you don't, forget, if you don't confess your sins. That's one more reason I love six-day creationism. You will forget you're a creature and you will slowly begin to think you are God. You won't say that, but you'll act that way. And the way you act is really what you believe. Don't tell me what you believe. Show me what you believe. If you don't talk about six-day creationism, very soon you will begin to forget creation. Recently I was with a man and I asked him about uh, his studies in science. He's done many, many years of studies in science. And I asked him, has this helped you to in, enjoy the works that God has done in the world? And he said, no, it is not. We will forget if we are not constantly turning our minds and our hearts and our thoughts. God gave us the Lord's table. God gave us family worship. God gave us the warnings about the second coming. Second Peter chapter three says specifically, ungodly men will tell you, ah, uh, he's not coming back. Just Forget it. And that's why, that's why Jesus says, don't forget. Watch, 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 watch. And again, all the past judgments in history are there to teach us to for, not to forget. And of course, the final one, what is it? What is it that you cannot dodge? You cannot change? Everyone knows about it. Everyone sees it. It will touch everyone. It's all through the Bible. It's the whole point of Genesis chapter 5. Everyone is terrified of it, and it is death. That is the great reality. Why will man never be allowed to conquer death? Because God has put it there as the one unchangeable reminder. Don't forget, you're a sinner. And therefore, don't forget, you need a savior. First reason that remembering is important is that we're quick to forget. Second reason remembering is important is that we forget other people's good and we forget our own evil. Why do we need to remember? Well, very simply, we forget the good stuff of other people. We never forget what? Our own good stuff. In fact, our own good stuff grows in our memory much more than it was. If you give 10 rand to a poor guy today, next week you'll say to your wife, oh, I think I gave 100 rand to that guy. (laughs) Have you ever found yourself doing that? Every good thing you do to your spouse, four weeks later you say, oh, but I did this and this. And she says, no, actually you only did this smaller thing. Well, didn't I? No, no, it was... <laughs> Sweetheart, didn't I give you this for your birthday? No, no, it was, it was that. No, I'm sure I gave you shoes and the skirt and the shirt and something else and the sweater. No, 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 Seth, you gave me 200 rand to Woolworths. <laughs> I thought, no, I'm sure I... <laughs> we always exaggerate our own good. We... Make our own evil very small. Have you ever played ball with a boy? He exaggerates how great he is and he de-emphasizes how good the other guy is. We need to remember because we constantly forget our own good. But the most important good that we forget is the divine blessings. God pours out kindness and we forget it all the time. That's why it's in the Psalms. Romans 2, 4, the goodness of God leads us to repentance. Why does Satan want you to forget God's goodness? Because God's goodness makes you repent. One of the reasons at our home, I'm constantly telling our kids, okay, before we pray for dinner, everyone go around and just say one good thing that God's done. Quickly, quickly, don't waste time, quickly. Why? 
If you have God's goodness always in your mind, always coming out your lips, it will help you to do what? Repent. Romans 2 verse 4. The goodness of God leads you to? If you forget the goodness of God, how in the world are you going to find time to? You're not going to repent if you're forgetting the goodness. And we always forget his goodness. This is why we have the Lord's Day. Brothers and sisters, let us devote our day on the Lord's Day to eternal matters. I'm not saying it's wrong to play soccer. I'm not saying it's wrong to take a bike ride with your kids. There was a section in our life when we only had one church plant when I took a bike ride with Caleb every day after church, every Lord's Day after church. I'm not against those things. My point is, with the Lord's Day, remember, it is God's day given to you to advance your family spiritually and your church spiritually. Use it that way. It's a gift from God. Number three, third reason why remembering is very important because we are in great danger when we forget. Hebrews 2 verses 1 and 2 says, we must take earnest heed to the things that we heard lest at any time we should let them slip. And that word slip means they're just going to float right down the river. You got to watch out because the gospel that you learned will just float right away. It'll slip right out of your grasp like soap in the shower. Has that ever happened to you? The soap just slipped away? Has that ever happened two times to you? You picked up and went out again? The gospel will do that to you. The truth will do that to you. Holiness, righteousness, godliness will do that to you. There must be a constant intensity on spiritual things because you will forget where, at, where you are at today, you will forget it tomorrow. And let me give you the example. I've used it probably three times already this week. I found it just this week while I was reading. I was researching Anthony Norris Groves in an excellent book that Brother Paul gave me. And he tells the story of how he went out as a missionary and a man named Frank Newman went out. And their pictures are in the book right in the middle. And Anthony Groves is ugly. His eyes are kind of crooked. It's not very attractive. Frank Newman is handsome and strong. His face is so good. Hair is beautiful. Frank Newman went out with Anthony Norris Groves, but after one term, he went back to London and he gave up the whole Christian faith. You will be like that and I will be like that without a constant remembering. So here's the point. Point number one, verses 20 to 23. Remember, they formed a tradition so that they would Remember, that's the, just that one word. If you want, you can even write it beside the word verses 20, 22, 20, 21, 22, and 23. You just write, remember. Remember, remember what? God's goodness. And that's the very next point. What must they remember? The first thing is remember. They formed their traditions so that they would, well, what did they remember? Let's see that now in verses 24 to 26. Haman. Oh, wait, wait, wait I'm sorry. What's the first word of verse 24? Four. Do you see that? They start this tradition for, it's the word because. They start this tradition because, because of what? Verse 24, Haman. Look at verse 25. Not only Haman, but who in verse 25? When Esther comes before the king. What's that? Read verse 25. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return. I'm sorry, I forgot to make mention of this. In Hebrew, there's a textual variant here. It can be he, she, or it. The King James translates it as she, Esther. 
I think that's correct. Now, if you have an ESV, what does the NASB say? He. He? Read verse 25. But when it came to the king's attention, he commanded by letter that his wicked scheme... That it... Depending on the textual variant, can be he, she, or it. The King James, the New King James says, when Esther. So I'm following the Esther reading. Esther came before the king. It might be just the king, when the king finally opened his eyes. But we know, how did it come to the king's attention? Through Esther. So that's why I'm following that reading. If you believe it, that, the, that the word should actually be when it came to the attention of the king, it still works out to be the same thing. So in verse 25, it's Esther. In verse 24, it's Haman. Well, what happened? There's a review. Look at verse 24. Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. He's called the Agagite in chapter 3. He's called the Agagite here again in chapter 10, 9, verse 24. Why? Because the Agagites were supposed to have been killed off. When? In 1 Samuel chapter 15 by Saul. Saul didn't kill off the Agagites. So where do we find them now? If you don't do what you're supposed to do, a thousand years later, somebody else is going to pay the consequences. You better do a good job today because if you do a bad job, it will bear fruit later. Right now, this Haman should have been killed. He should have never come into being. He should never have been here if Saul had done his job earlier on. Saul didn't do his job. Now the Jews are in danger. God has to save them a second time. Esther has to risk. Mordecai has to suffer. All these people go through hardship because Saul did not do his job. You watch out. The evil you do will affect other people you don't even know about. This comes from uh, or is illustrated by uh, Hazlitt's book, Economics in One Lesson. Economics in One Lesson is this. Do not think about the immediate consequences, but think about the consequences on all people down into the future. That's economics in one lesson. So if you say, I know what I'll do. We'll have the government build a shopping mall here. That will help. It will create 400 jobs and it will do this and this and this. Oh, think of what it will do to all the people and then think of what it will do down into the future. For example, where is the government going to get the money to build the 20 million rand shopping mall? They're going to take it from you to build the shopping mall for them. Well, are you going to be happy if they take the money from you? Just think about what it does to all the people. And if you build the shopping mall there, what's going to happen to the pick and pay mall of the, uh, the other one, Mikado Crossing? They're going to lose all that business. How do you think that's going to make those guys feel? Do you think they're going to lose some jobs on that side? Well, well we created all these 400 jobs. Yeah, but you lost 250 jobs. So really, you gained 150 jobs and you spent 20 million of other people's money. And because you spent that money, he couldn't open his business where he was going to employ six people. Etc. Etc. Same thing is true in the Christian life because economics is a wonderful reflection of the Christian life. Same thing is true here. Because Saul doesn't do what's right, hey, I'm not hurting anyone. I mean, all I did was not kill some some uh, 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 Amalekites. I mean, what's the big deal? I mean, whether they die or whether they live, who knows? What's the big problem with that? Hundreds of years later, Esther is terrified because Saul didn't do his job. And he had the power, the strength, and the opportunity to do it. And he said, ah, let me go rest. I don't want to do that. Well, look in verse 24. Not only is he an Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, all the Jews, it's only Mordecai who doesn't bow. Ah, but remember, evil men are irrational. 
When a man is angry, he loses his ability to think rationally. He's angry at all the Jews because Mordecai doesn't bow. And then what happens? He devised against the Jews to destroy and it cast pur, that is the lot, to consume them and to destroy them. Destroy, consume, and destroy. Those are the Hebrew words that are used more in Esther than any book of the Bible. There's a number of words that are used in Esther more than any book of the Bible. Letters uh, per capita, uh, per verse, and um, uh, destroy, kill, and consume. So this guy says, because Mordecai won't respect me, I'm going to kill all the Jews. That's irrational. And then number two, I'm going to throw the dice to figure out how to kill them. The dice, a lot, it's a Persian, uh, the word per is only found in Esther, only found in the ninth chapter. Because the lot was, is it in chapter three as well? Chapter three, verse seven. You can look and see if it's chapter three, verse seven has per as well. This, er, this Persian word is not used in any other book of the Bible. Haman was casting per, which was maybe shards of pottery or bones, something like a dice. He would throw them on the floor and he would see how they land. You've seen guys do it, right? They take the dice, they shake it, shake it, shake it. They have their, they have their little flick of the wrist. They flick it and then what do they do? Snap their fingers and point. And sometimes they even say little words. Yeah! I've seen it over and over and over. That's what Haman does. What an irrational man. Oh, I've got an idea. A respectable person doesn't bow in front of me. How about I kill everyone from that ethnicity? And then in order to determine when to kill them, I'll shake some dice and throw them on the ground. And it says in chapter 3, verse 7, he did it day by day up until he found the month he wanted. So he's not even following the dice anyway. He keeps rolling until he gets the day he wants. Why roll the dice? You already knew what you wanted to do. And so the Jews remember the day this man with his irrational hatred attempts to completely destroy them. But that's not the only thing they remember. Verse 25, what else do they remember? When it comes before the king, when she comes before the king, when Esther comes before the king, then the king says, get the letters out. Get the letters out because the wicked device which he devised against the Jews must return on his own head. Irony. The very thing God, Satan uses to destroy the Jews is what God will use to save them. I'll kill them with an agagite. The agagite will be killed. I'll kill them with letters. Letters will fix the problem. I'll kill them by the king. The pagan king will solve the problem. I'll kill them with words. Words will be the solution. I'll kill them in the 12th month. 12th month will be their deliverance. All the way through the history of redemption. God takes what would hurt his people and twists it to save his people. In, in fact, it not only kills Haman, it does the full job. He and all his sons. And then we're going to see all the enemy. Verse 26. Wherefore they call these days Purim. Per is one. In Hebrew, I am means plural, more than one. If you hear cherub, that's one angel. Cherubim, many angels. Seraph, one angel. Seraphim, many angels. Here, per, one lot. Purim, many lots. Elohim, many gods. El, one god. No, that does not mean that Elim is the place of gods. Therefore, for all the words of this letter, verse 26... And that which they had seen concerning the matter in which they had, which had come unto them. What are we learning here? They remembered specific con, uh, content. Haman had tried to kill them. He wanted to crush them. And now, as this foolish man uses dice to try to kill them, they turn the irony back on him and they say, 
you thought to bring us down by random chance. And so for all time, we are going to have a holiday where we're going to call it the holiday of throwing dice. That's basically the name. Can you imagine? Oh, oh, we're getting school off. What school off? Oh, it's the spring box one. Oh, and next week there's another one. Oh, what's the holiday next week? Throwing dice. What? It's throwing dice. What are you talking about? No one would ever forget. Every child knows how to throw dice. And every child would remember. Oh, this is the throwing dice one. Oh, I remember this story. It's when the evil man threw the dice to kill everyone. Throw the dice to kill everyone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He hated us all because our one... Uh, the one father, Mordecai, wouldn't bow. And so he wanted to kill us all. So he threw the dice to find out how to kill us. But God took the dice and turned it back on his own head. That's the whole point. That is the whole point. They were delivered in an unexpected way, verse 25. So let me ask you this. And now I come to the real meat of the message. Are you ready? Here's the meat of the message. Are you so exhausted you can't hear anymore? Listen here. This is the glory maybe of the entire book of Esther. If you rolled a dice once, what are the chances that you'd get a six? One of six, 16%. If you rolled two dices, what are the chances you'd get two sixes? One in 36? What if you took three dice, four dice, five dice, Every die you add increases exponentially the difficulty that they would all be sixes. But this is exactly what happened. Let me go back through the entire book of Esther and read to you over 40 of these unusual providences. What is providence? Well, here it is. If it happens, it's providence. That's what you know. Okay, ready? What is providence? Whatever happens. Or, okay, let me give it to you another way. If it happens, then it has been planned, permitted, or produced by providence. Planned, permitted, or produced. Because you say, what about the fact that my aunt was attacked by evil criminals? That was permitted. God permitted it. He was not the author. He did not, send, he did not attack them. He did not do that sin. He did not love that sin. He permitted it for his own good purposes, just like he permitted Haman here. What are remarkable providences? How can we tell if something is remarkable enough to remember? Remarkable providences are those events that seem most unlikely because they happened along with other unusual events. So if you have a really unusual event and then another unusual event and then a third unusual event, the more unusual events you put on it, the more you say, every time another unusual event is added to it, the more you say, that can't, no, how did that happen? How did that happen? We were attacked by a croc just when my wedding ring came off. And then the guy who was attacked, remember the, the TV show, put his hand down the throat. And then there happened to be a doctor in the village. And he happened to be able to stitch us up. And we happened to be able to get home the next day. Wow, five, six providences? That's remarkable. What would you say to 40 providences in a row? Here they are. Chapter one, Hazuerus is the king. So that it's his whims that put Haman up. This man, this king, is twist. He, he, he changes like the wind. He puts Haman up and then throws him back down. He puts Mordecai up. That's unusual to have a king like that. 
Number two, Hasuerus has a six-month political summit. How many emperors have a six-month political summit? He has a six-month political summit so that he will be able to throw down his wife. Then he calls for his wife. Why in the world would you call for your wife when it already said in chapter one, there's a woman's track and a man's track? What's he doing on the last week of this big event? Six months long. He doesn't call for her in month one, month two, month three, month four, month five. Why does he call for her in the sixth month? When he calls, why doesn't she come? Come on, she's got to know if I don't come, like bad stuff's going to happen. Why doesn't she come? Then why do the lawyers recommend permanent divorce? The lawyers could recommend anything. Just calm down, calm down. No, they say, uh, uh, why don't you give her a divorce forever? Then why does he divorce her? Then, here's some, um, now, now it gets exciting. Esther's parents die. You say, that's bad luck. And Aslan says, I don't call that bad. Not only do her parents die, if her parents die, where would she be? Probably not in the Persian Empire. Her parents die, so she goes with her uncle. When she's with her uncle, she just happens to be gorgeous, more than any girl in the entire country, stretching from India over to Europe and down into southern and northern Africa. She's the most beautiful girl in the entire world. How did that happen? So that when she was conceived, God said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you unusually beautiful. Your chin, your ears, your, your eyes, your face. And then I'm going to give you good character so you'll be pleasing to talk to. So much so that she can go in without makeup and still win the beauty pageant. How did that happen? But it's not just that. Mordecai's in a position of influence. It's not just that. He raises Esther. So well, he has to be a really good dad to her because she loves Mordecai and will do anything he says. If Mordecai's a jerk, Esther's not going to obey him. And that rest messes up the whole plan. Mordecai's got to be a really good single dad. Shout out to single parents. <laughs> Mordecai is found in this position. And then Hazuerus decides, how about I have a beauty pageant? Why doesn't he decide any other way to pick a queen? Like... Hey, go bring five girls and I'll pick. No, go get the entire country. After I've just had a six-month six political um, summit and after I just lost to the Greeks, history tells us. And then Esther enters. Why doesn't Esther say no? Because it does involve sin. God used their sin. Esther sinned and Mordecai sinned. There's no way to get around it. Why did Esther enter? God even worked through Esther's sin. Then when she enters, how does she win? Then after she wins, she doesn't turn her back on Mordecai. Then after that, two guys, Big Than and his friend, plot against the king. Why do they get angry just at that time and not six months earlier? Then when they get angry, how does Mordecai find out? Then when Mordecai finds out, he tells Hester, you know what you would do if you were in another country and they had killed and crushed your people? And then you find out that there's a plot to kill the king and all you have to do is just pretend you didn't hear it and the king dies and your people at least get some kind of justice, poetic justice. The king at least got his head cut off. Instead, Mordecai says, no, I'm going to do what's right. The book of Jeremiah says, seek the peace of the place you're in. I'm going to go, king, I know you're an evil, wicked man who's done many evil things. You've exalted Haman. I know you've done all these things, but I've got to tell you, two guys want to kill you. 
Where does Mordecai get this kind of character? And then furthermore, these, everyone is another dice we're adding in. It's not a six-sided dice. It's a hundred-sided dice because it could have happened a hundred different ways. But we're only getting just begun because not only does this happen, but the king forgets to honor him. What kind of king forgets to tell a guy, oh, like you saved my life. Thanks, man. Here's a thousand rand. No, he does nothing. Until the very last night possible. And on the very last night possible, suddenly the king can't sleep. How'd that happen? And when the king can't sleep, he doesn't call for a violin. He says, bring me a book. No, not Jane Austen. I'd rather have the Chronicles of Shushan. What a dull, boring book. Well, he says, that'll put you to sleep. And they open this massive multi-volume book. Where? Right where Mordecai's name is written. And how did Mordecai's name get written? And how did his name get written without him getting paid? And how did the king remember? And then why did the king think to say, hey, uh, we ever pay that guy? <laughs> why did the king just pass it over? He's the king, remember? But he does remember. But he gets more. Then he says, hey, 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 hey. I'm going to ask someone about this. The guy reading says, what, do you want to ask me? No, not you. I'm going to go out into the, into the lobby. Hey, hey, who's here? Oh, it's Haman. Why does he ask Haman? And when he asks Haman, he hides it from Haman, who the guy is he wants to honor. Why does he hide who it is? He hides, oh, it's, uh, if you wanted to give honor to some guy, who would you give, how would you do it? Why does Haman think it's him? Every one of these is another dice put into the, put into the equation. And it's vital that this happen because Haman has to honor Mordecai so that Haman will be filled with anger. Why is Haman filled with anger and not humility? Then when he goes home, he talks to his wife, and his wife says to him, why don't you uh, say kill him, and uh, why don't you build this immediately, not tomorrow, today, right now, before dinner, 5 o'clock. Rush out right now and get a 25-meter pole, multiple extensions, and build it up in our front yard. Yeah, where, where my flowers are. Like, trample the flower bed and build a 25-meter gallows to hang dead bodies. What woman is going to say that? If you don't see design, you're blind. This is like a guy taking a bucket of dice, dropping them on the floor. Everyone is a six. And as they're rolling out, he says, ah, it's a chance. It's a chance. Do it again. <laughs> it's six after six rolling out, and we're not even done. Because over and over, why does Mordecai weep in public? Why does Ahasuerus listen to Haman's stupid argument? Why does Mordecai refuse to bow? Why does Haman extend his anger to all the Jews? Why does Esther try to comfort Mordecai? Why does Mordecai have to convince her to go to the king? Why is Esther convinced? Why does Esther call the prayer meeting? Which it says right here that the prayer meeting was answered. The reason all this happens is because they're fasting in prayer. Oh, it got answered at the end. We learn that at the very end of the story. In verse 31, we're going to get to it. So this whole thing hinged on prayer. <laughs> Why is Esther spared before the king? The king doesn't mind killing people. You see what he did to Vashti? Vashti was an overwhelmingly beautiful girl. And after doing the king's will over and over and over, she says, no, I'm not coming. And he says, ah, get rid of her. What, like forget every good thing she did? Yes, all of it. What a stupid thing to do. Why doesn't he forget all of Esther's good? He doesn't. Why, did, why can't Esther make her request the first day? Why does Haman build the gallows? Why can't Azuera sleep? 
Why does Esther tell the king? Why is Ahasuerus angry? Why does Haman plead with Esther? Why does Ahasuerus sentence him to death? Then it goes on. Why does Esther plead after Haman is dead? Esther goes in again and pleads for her people. Why do they think up this idea of self-defense? Why do the Jews kill their enemies and not take the money? Then why does Ahasuerus exalt Mordecai over and over and over? That's a bucket of hundred-sided die, and they all come up six. You see, if you hate God, you will see evolution in the trees. If you love God, you will see God's fingerprint and his signature on everything. If you love God, this book will be to you shadows and signposts to the new covenant, which is our final sermon. Going to give you 40 ways this book points to the new covenant. I think it'll be maybe the most inspiring thing in the whole book. Brothers and sisters, I just want to tell you that even the smallest events in life are entirely controlled by a good plan. The most terrifying things like genocide and the loss of Esther's purity. The smallest things like dice being thrown by a demonic man, a man controlled by demons. The most irrational things, like his anger, his pride. Even the things that happen when we are under God's displeasure. Because remember, where is Mordecai right now? He's not in the land. He could have gone back with Ezra. Zerubbabel already went back. Ezra already went back. Mordecai didn't go. Why didn't you go back, Mordecai? Why didn't you sign your name, Mordecai? Even under God's displeasure, he controls every single thing that happens. The things that are happening in your job or with your wife or with your kids are not up to chance. Every single thing. Some people say, well, that means that when my child died in that car accident, it was God. And I say to you, you could say it this way. When your child died in the car accident... God knew what he was doing and did not take his hands off the steering wheel. He was working out good things for you and you can throw yourself on him. Read the book of Esther and say, I will cast myself on you, God. Or what can you say? I will cast myself on me. Where do you want to put your trust? What's the options? God wasn't in control. It was Satan. When a terrible crime happened to you, when someone was raped, when the divorce came, when you lost your job unfairly, when the criminals came in, when the depression came and you lost all your retirement, what do you call it, GPR? What, what is the retirement fund? GPA. GP? F. F. You lose the retirement fund, it falls in half. Here's your options. You were in control. Satan was in control or God was in control. If I could choose, I'd really want God to be in control. Yes, but then that means God is taking very bad things and bringing about good things out of them. And that's the whole point of this. That is the entire point of this feast of throwing dice. Let's close with this, verses 27 to 32. Verse 27, the Jews ordained and took on them on their seed on all such as joined themselves to them. It should not fail that they would keep these two days. They demanded all the people and the converts. Right there, verse 27. All such as joined to them. 
Several people had become converts to the Jews. We saw that earlier back in chapter 8, verse 17. God not only preserved the Jews, he brought them to a higher position politically, a higher position socially, a greater position with population. They were a larger nation at the end of this attack than before. They were a richer nation before. Better economics, better political structure, better geographic structure, better ethnic heritage because now they have a glorious holiday and there's more of them. God worked every good thing and no bad things. But they had months and months of terror, hardship, exhaustion, stress, weeping. Do you still remember chapter four? They're weeping in the streets. No, no, no. Here, put this on. Comfort yourself. No, I cannot be comforted. 75,000 of our enemies are out there. And that man has the king's ear. That worm tongue is poisoning the king. And it'll kill us all. That's right. Chapter four is there. And maybe you're living in chapter four. And I'm calling you to look forward to chapter nine. Because there is a feast coming. And that's what we need to be confident on. Verse 28. And that these days should be remembered. That's where I got it, right there. They should be remembered, don't forget. And kept throughout every generation, every family, every promise, province, every city. All time, that's all generation. All the ethnicity, that's every family. Every province, that's all geography. Every city, that's all the, the jobs, all the economic stratus. These days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews, nor the memorial, there's remembrance again. There should, the memorial should never end from all, any of their children. Verse 29. Then Esther, the queen, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai, the Jew, wrote with all authority to confirm this second letter of Purim. So Esther writes a third letter. See, this is the second letter. They wrote a letter back in chapter 8, verse 10, to deliver them. That's in March. They write a letter in March. They write another letter in December. After Mordecai writes the letter, Esther says, me too. I want in on this. Do you see? Every believer, when they see good, remember, good things being done, they want in on those things. Esther says, you're writing letters. Let me join too. Don't you ever want to join the good works that other good believers are doing? Verse 30, he sent the letters to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces. It's very interesting that the error went to 127 provinces. Chapter 3, verse 13. Chapter 8, verse 9, the longest verse in the Bible. I've read that verse and just kind of laughed at it before. Chapter 8, verse 9 is very important. It says the solution goes as far as the problem. However far the problem is, the solution goes just as far. I wonder how that affects our discussions of the extent of the atonement. The problem went to all 127 provinces in chapter 3, verse 13. And the solution goes to all 127 provinces, chapter 8, verse 9. However, wherever the curse goes, which we just sang, as far as the curse goes, that's how far the solution goes. Chapter 8, verse 9. And again, the rejoicing must go as far as the problem too. Rejoicing is not a small thing. It is a big thing. It is a duty of a Christian. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says, you are commanded to serve the Lord with joy. Then again in Deuteronomy, it says, you will be judged. Why? Because you did not serve the Lord with gladness. God judges his people if they're not happy. You say, what? You can't command me to be happy. God does. So you better do it. He wants us to be happy. He wants us to live lives that are happy. He does not want us always to be morose and heavy. He wants us to laugh. 
He wants good sense of humor. He even likes dad jokes. Verse 31. To confirm these days of prayer and the times appointed according as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen had enjoined them and as they had decreed for themselves and for their seed, the matters of their fastings and their cry. That's their prayer. Right there. They're writing the letters because their prayers are answered. When they fasted back in chapter four, the answer came. And now they make sure they don't forget. Brothers and sisters, it is very important that you never forget answers to prayer. When you get answers to prayer, make sure you make a special time. Dads, make answer to prayer night an important time. Talk to them, show them the answer to prayer. We've been praying that the kids would be saved. We've been praying that Nico would learn to have self-control. Nico, I've seen that in you. Fuzani, I've seen it. You're growing. Aren't you understanding the Bible? I remember last year you didn't. That's what we prayed for. Colin, you were humble and repentant. That's what we prayed for. Callie, you've been controlling your tongue. Haven't we prayed that you would remember to hold your tongue? God's answering our prayers. That's verse 31. 32, the final verse of chapter 9. The decree of Esther. That is the third letter. The letter that Esther wrote. Confirmed these matters of Purim. It was written in the book. Why? So that it could never, ever be changed. So here we close with this. It is an, and here's the whole thesis of the state of this sermon. I saved it for the very end. Here's the thesis. It is an important part of worship to take pains to remember God's actions in the ordinary events of life. It is an important part of worship to remember everything God does with your car, with your coffee, with your money, with your day-to-day schedule. Remember that God is using all of it. He is using all of it to make us more like Christ and to bring good things for his son's name. Father, I pray that your spirit would fill us and make us eager to see how you are working in our schools and in our day-to-day lives, in our workplace, in our families. Please forgive us for forgetting the goodness of the Lord. I pray that you would make us eager, willing in the day of your power. I pray that you would make us confident in providence. I pray that we would see the remarkable providences you've put. May we praise you and love you and adore you for your constant goodness to us in the everyday life. And when we have pain, Father, save us from doubt and help us to trust in the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.